0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, books, comics, sci-fi, TV and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here your host Dandry Leyland. It's the home stretch as I look at the final five issues of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's epoch making run on the amazing Spider-Man. The end begins with issue 34, the thrill of the hunt by the aforementioned. There's no longer any confusion as to who is doing what, as Stan clearly labels himself as editor and scripter, and Ditko as plotter and artist. The cover is the 13th in a row to feature either very little copy or no copy at all, other than the title of the issue. This would continue for a short time to come. The cover is therefore very subdued. Craven the Hunter leaps from atop a high building onto a plummeting and shocked Spider-Man. It's eye-catching enough until one ponders what exactly was Craven's plan from this point. To fall and just hope Spider-Man saves them both? Or for both men to make a large mess on the pavement? Some breathtaking Ditko art greets us from the splash page, which opens directly into the story. Craven enters from the rear of the room, his face obscured by a net. He surveys his trophies, the stuffed remains of every animal to walk, crawl, climb or fly our verdant planet. He bemoans that there is one he has hunted that has escaped his wrath, and he will not rest until the mask of Spider-Man adorns his trophy room. He then proves his machismo by imbibing his special jungle herbs, okay, Craven, and then fights a big lion in his backyard. Later, he sneaks back into America via Nairobi. It's a good opening, even if it offers nothing new or nothing we haven't seen before. Craven is a decent enough bad guy offering something Spider-Man's other adversaries can't. He's in it for honour rather than anything else, but he's still one note. His shtick isn't terribly interesting on its third or fourth run-through, and his stories are predictable. He's not going to win, because that's the end of the strip. And even if he does win, so what? Other than a cameo in Amazing Spider-Man 18, we've seen Spider-Man fight Craven twice now. And whilst his first appearance was a nice take-off of the most dangerous game, his second appearance was part of the Sinister Six, where he didn't exactly come out on top. He tried fighting Iron Man in Tales of Suspense issue 18, and that went as well as you'd expect. What's notable here is Stan's introduction to Craven, featuring the somewhat magnificent menace of Craven the Hunter, he writes on the splash page. Whilst this kind of tips us off to Stan's feelings about Craven, it's also not the first time Stan has mocked one of Ditko's bad guys, and I do wonder if this played a part in Ditko leaving. Why pour your heart and soul into this stuff only to have your script to take the piss? Panel 2 of page 3 also shows the disconnect between Lee and Ditko. Stan has Craven think about delivering his four-legged captive to a zoo before pursuing Spider-Man, whereas I think Ditko placed this panel here to show how Craven snuck back into the USA after being deported. The next few pages are where the meat of the story lie. Betty has a dream that Peter tells her his secret and that he is in fact Spider-Man. This is a really dramatic beat with great art from Ditko and it's a nice fake-out. The reader isn't clued into this being a dream until they turn the page, and Betty having the screaming heebies over this plays into her not having got over the loss of her brother. I adore that a lot of Ditko's plotting comes from character, and even when he doesn't mention it directly, as here, a line can clearly be drawn between how a person is acting now and past events. The final panel of Betty sitting up in bed, the moonlight casting dark shadows over the room, is wonderful. And although the reader doesn't know it yet, this is the last we'll see of Betty Brandt until issue 40. No fanfurs, no goodbyes. She simply leaves. Much like Steve Ditko, in anyway. Peter, meanwhile, is bathed in that same moonlight, studying late to catch up with his college work. He's happy to learn that May is on the mend and tries to build bridges at college, but the other kids, led by Harry, who seems to be taking Flash's place as the biggest moron on campus, feel that Peter is stuck up. Harry is incredibly proud of his accomplishment, saying to Gwen, We told that egghead where to get off, eh, Gwen? Once again, showing Harry's complete lack of self-awareness. You're in a college science class, Harry. You're all eggheads. Only Gwen acknowledges that Maybe Peter had something going on outside of college, showing that she's a little bit more self-aware than the others. We'll later learn that Gwen lost her mother and is raised in a single-parent household, and this may give her a different and more mature perspective. Granted, we'll learn this about Harry as well, and he's a massive tool, so ultimately it must come down to George Stacey being a good parent and Norman Osborne being an ass. Gwen is still contradictory, though, vowing to make Peter pay for... something... Peter leaves and blows off a chance to make some money, his bank account still having a fur bit in it from Jonah's last cheque. Surprisingly for a Ditko-plotted story, this event doesn't come back to bite Peter on the arse later. Peter's looking very buff here in his white shirt and yellow cardigan and later in a white T-shirt, and we see Ditko is starting to develop Peter's physique. Granted, some of this could be due to Aunt May, who seems to do nothing but shovel food down Peter's throat. This is especially funny when she asks if Peter washed that apple before eating it. Peter's snarky reply, sure you did, you know I'm not one to live dangerously, showcases Stan's irreverent dialogue. Craven arrives in town and shacks up at the same place he and the chameleon used back in issue 15. He does some more drugs and then adopts the old dress-up as Spider-Man to harass J. Jonah Jameson so Jonah will think Spidey is a crook angle. Due to May's still frail condition, Peter decides to not follow up on the news when he hears about it later. Craven, however, isn't about to let a foolproof plan such as this go to waste, and he continues his public harassment of Jonah. Peter gets a break when Anna Watson pops around for a chat. There's a subtle mention of Mary Jane, just a reminder she's still out there, and some of those lovely panels of John Q. Public mouthing off about Spider-Man, proving once again that the public never know what they're talking about. The nice thing here is the panel at ESU on page nine. Despite having no dialogue, Ditko draws Gwen as being unable to take her eyes off Peter. Suddenly free of his responsibilities, Spider-Man decides to check out these reports, and Craven is waiting for him. Craven sprays Spider-Man with a jungle scent to dull his spider sense, and vows that should Spider-Man win, he'll confess it was him all along. Once again, we see Craven living up to his name by stacking the deck in his favor, as opposed to engaging in an equal battle. Although I suspect he could have made a lot of money marketing his jungle scent, I can see the pretentious black and white adverts being a big hit with the polo-neck-clad hipsters of the sixties. By pure coincidence, a group of thugs who seem to just be hanging around an abandoned district see Spider-Man and decide that this is their chance to end him finally and forever. What follows is a really inventive fight scene, as Spider-Man must ward off the marauding thugs and craver without benefit of his spider sense. Ditko pulls out his usual visual bag of tricks by having Spider-Man hide in the shadows of these empty and abandoned buildings. There seems to be some more miscommunication here between Stan and Steve, though, as but a page after Craven uses his jungle scent, Ditko draws Spidey with his spider senses blurring. In the dialogue, Stan plays this offer by having Spidey say he hears the thug's footprints coming in from the next door, and on the next page, Stan thinks that the scent must have only dulled his senses rather than rendered them completely inert. I am unsure as to who, if anybody, is at fault here, but Craven does later note that the jungle scent makes it easier to track Spider-Man. It's possible Ditko never planned for it to dull Spidey's spider senses at all, and this was added later by Stan. The fight is close quarters, for the most part, and Craven is unamused by the Hood's appearance, helping Spider-Man take a few of them out so they don't interfere in his victory. Craven, despite his story limitations, is still an interesting character. He's a man who has achieved a measure of success over the years and never been defeated, until Spider-Man came along. And then this inability to win consumes Craven. Like Ahab, Craven has a white whale, and his obsession will ultimately be his undoing. Take it on that level, Craven's is quite a tragic story. He talks an awful lot for a silent hunter, though. Sadly, the fight concludes with simple fisticuffs, a match that is hardly equal, and Spidey takes Craven out quite easily. After such a build-up, this is quite a disappointment. Ditko's fight choreography is still impressive and balletic, another thing Miller would steal for Daredevil, but the fight boiling down to five panels of Spider-Man just punching Craven feels like the climax to a Rocky movie, rather than an issue of Spider-Man. Far more interesting is the next page, when Spider-Man takes some photos, but realises that to sell them, you'll have to see Betty. This is a really sad couple of panels, beautifully illustrated, and casts the earlier scene in a far different light. Peter didn't go after the crooks earlier because he had money left, but because he didn't want to see Betty. This character beat, which culminates in a traditional and iconic Ditko panel of Spidey walking alone at night along the edge of a building, is a far more effective ending to the story. We feel for Peter, and that's why we're invested in this material. His heart is aching for his lost love, and even though he's been putting a brave face on it throughout the issue, his pain is keenly felt. This ending gives more shading to the entire issue, an issue that in retrospect can be seen as a life-goes-on story. Peter is heartsick, but life continues, and his life consists of nutters in lion suits trying to kill him. Peter even says as much in the final panels. Back in his room, he tries to come to terms with this being the life he has chosen. He's Spider-Man now, for better or worse, and that has come in between him and happiness. Adding a touch of irony, the reader learns that Betty has quit the bugle and left town. Overall, this feels like a filler issue, with only the subplots and the ending giving it any weight. Stan and Steve do a remarkable job of capturing what it's like to lose the girl you think means everything to you, and the feeling that you'll never move on. Peter really was an excellent avatar for the readers who will have been going through much the same thing themselves at the age they were reading this, as I know I was. No character spoke to me as much as Peter Parker did. Sure, when I grew up, I wanted to be Dave Starsky or Steve Austin, but Peter was me, as I was at 14, 15 years of age. He was, as silly as it sounds, a friend who understood what I was going through. Even in as throwaway an issue as this one, that resonated. Issue 35, The Molten Man Regrets, has a cover and a splash page that are fully indistinguishable from each other. On the cover, Spider-Man leaps over camera towards the Molten Man, who runs towards us out of a curiously white spider signal. On the splash, Spider-Man fights the Molten Man, webbing his arms and grabbing his ankle inside a shabby-looking hotel room. The splash is better because the cover just doesn't look like Ditko. Spider-Man looks off somehow. The story opens some months ago, which means it's almost directly after the last time the Molten Man appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 27. Our man Raxton has been acting repentant and, as a reward, gets a suspended sentence whereby he goes home and immediately starts planning his next gig. This time, however, he's no novice, and he'll bide his time until he has the perfect score. A few days later, Raxton makes his move, robbing a jewellery store. Spider-Man happens by on the next page. There's a lovely shot of Spider-Man dropping down from the skyscrapers, and the scene with Raxton robbing the jewellery store is very effective. Ditko has Raxton ooze menace as he crushes a gun in his hands. Doubly effective is that the Molten Man is in disguise here, so we wouldn't know that it is he without the context. The story may have been more surprising if it had opened with this scene, having both us and Spider-Man be unaware that this was, in fact, the Molten Man. The Molten Man pretends to surrender and Spidey, not knowing who this is, drops his guard, giving us a great panel of this seemingly normal citizen, punching our hero's lights out. Catching Spidey by surprise, he manages to flee the scene. Back in his apartment, the Molten Man tears off the mask and Ditko again manages to make him look very menacing through the use of cigarette smoke and facial expressions. The Molten Man has made the transition here from vaguely sympathetic to outright villain. Spider-Man, upset by the defeat, changes to Peter Parker and buys a newspaper that has a front page story on an event that just this moment happened. That's instantaneous news reporting that the internet would be envious of. Peter fiddles with a metal ruler, ponders his enemy's moves, and takes a step to where the conclusions lie. Though, he thinks that the guy he just thought might be the Molten Man. Coupled with Spidey just happening by the robbery, these are two of the laziest plot occurrences in a Ditko Spider-Man comic. We've already established that Spider-Man met the Molten Man once, a number of months ago, and though he was far too preoccupied with graduating high school. To remember the Molten Man from that, given everything else going on in his life then and since, is stretching credibility somewhat. But superheroes do seem to have remarkable memories, recalling every single thing that has happened to them, regardless of the intervening years. Peter remembers where the Molten Man lives, and, proving once again that he doesn't believe in second chances, Spidey plants a spider tracer in Raxton's lapel. In a lovely touch, Spider-Man spends weeks tracking the Molten Man, and there's even a nod to this taking place over the same time as his finals. This could be Stan simply acknowledging any exams, but I don't know what other tests he'd be studying for this early into his semester. Sometimes I think it's best to not analyse the timeframes of comics too much. That said, it's quite ingenious to have this story open a few months ago and then slowly catch up with the present day, and I don't know if that had been done in a comic before. Peter is also rather cleverly snapping some photos, an everyday occurrence for Spider-Man, you may think, but this one has a different payoff. Ditko engages in some unusual panel work on page 10 where he indulges himself in a wide panel across the top third of the page and then two large panels across the bottom as the Molten Man bursts out of his suit and reveals his glorious yellow underpants which seem to have a belt on them. What then follows could most charitably be referred to as the first example of comics decompression and Ditko has Spider-Man and the Molten Man fight with each other for seven pages. A page and a half is wordless as Stan apparently promised letter Artisimic Simic a chance to go wild. Now, there's nothing wrong with a villain whose sole reason to exist is to provide a physical challenge for the hero, and likewise, there's nothing wrong with a respite after a long storyline. However, this fight, interesting though some of the panel work may be, is pretty much the same as the fight in the Craven issue. It's mainly Spidey and the Molten Man trading blows. Spider-Man doesn't do anything clever or use his powers in an innovative or interesting way. They just clobber each other. We've been conditioned to expect more from this strip, as we've seen again and again. Spider-Man thinks his way out of a fight. Even after the Molten Man says he's not going to be captured the same way he was caught last time, he proceeds to be subdued in exactly the same way as his last appearance. Spider-Man loops wedding round the Molten Man's ankles and wrists, and after the webbing hardens, he hog-ties Raxton. Raxton isn't concerned. Spider-Man can't prove he was involved in the jewellery robberies after all. Spider-Man is delighted to prove Raxton wrong as he hands him over to the cops and, after developing the pictures, drops off copies. We'll ignore how the police don't see these exact same shots in the Daily Bugle later and start to wonder why Spider-Man was taking photos of the Molten Man committing a crime and instead smile at Ditko using the old Peter sets his automatic camera up for photos trope and actually does something interesting with it for the benefit of the story. I was also a fan of how the police are seen to trust Spider-Man here. They really have nothing on Raxton, so keeping him at the precinct is a bit dubious. But the cops on the beat have long known that what J. Jonah Jameson says about Spider-Man is utter bunk. The last two pages have Peter head to the bugle with his pictures, where he finally learns Betty has quit her job without a word. Bitter, he leaves the photos for Jonah, telling his new secretary that Jonah can mail him the cheque. Before he leaves, the new secretary gives Peter a picture of him Betty had on her desk. It is inscribed, To Betty, Forever, Peter. Peter tosses it in the trash as he walks off, thinking that forever must have been a lifetime ago. Visually, there are some nice touches. Spider-Man waiting for Raxton in the shadows in the top panel of page 15 is stunning, and the final panel of him walking away as the silhouettes of Betty's head swim around him is wonderfully melancholic, especially with the panel borders shattering, as if to signify his life falling apart. However, this is rather plotless and not particularly interesting. It's not bad... There's no such thing as a bad dick host Spider-Man comic unless we count Strange Tales Annual Number 2, and we don't count that. But this is a startling come down after what has come before. The issue concludes with a shot of next issue's villain. Somebody so different we can't even tell you his name yet runs Stan's copy, which means Steve probably didn't tell him. This villain will turn out to be the looter, and he features on the cover of Amazing Spider-Man issue 36, twatting Spider-Man across the jaw. Spider-Man looks like he's flying, and the looter seems to be running in mid-air. They're either in a science museum or in a strange void, as there's no background, but there are a lot of planets and a sun. Spidey as you like him. In college, in trouble, in action, 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 runs the blurb, seeming very much like a James Bond movie poster, which was presumably intentional. The splash for When Falls the Meteor, the title of the story, is, as is often the case, better than the cover. Spider-Man and the looter fight in the sky, Spidey off balance, and the looter on a harness high above the New York skyline. This clearly defined place for the action, plus the element of danger, Spider-Man looks like he's falling and is out of control, makes for a more dynamic image. The story opens with a meteor falling to Earth. A man, not G. Fester, finds the meteor and tries to unlock its secrets, feeling it will help him solve the riddles of the universe. Why he thinks there's something special about this meteor is not explained, but he does exclaim that it is just the type he has been seeking. However, Festa has no scientific background or aptitude, and even less money, and so turned down by every bank in town, Festa takes a hammer and chisel to the meteor. I know right? really f-ing scientific. Against all odds, this yields fantastic results, and Festa hits a gas pocket which shoots some alien gas right into his face, giving him. Fantastic abilities. Now, on the face of it, this is a perfectly acceptable origin for a villain. It's vague enough that it could happen. After all, space is full of alien shit that we know nothing about. But Lee's genius here is in the characterization of Norton G. Fester as an incompetent bum. Fester believes himself to be a Mensa candidate, but has no scientific knowledge to speak of. He thinks he's intelligent, and this is why he can't hold down a job, but really he's lazy and thinks the world owes him a living. Lee's dialogue when Fester attempts to secure funding is amusing, and setting Fester up as a bit of a loser is a funny turn of events. All of Spider-Man's other foes, when hit with something like this, have been at best competent and at worst borderline crazy. Anyway, this is the first time a Spider-Man villain is seen as being inept from the start. It's a nice twist, and I'll credit to Stan the dialogue and characterization that he sets up. In burlier page tells us everything we need to know about Norton G. Fester. What Ditko felt of Stan turning Fester into a bit of a loser moron is something we'll probably never know. Over at ESU, Peter is trying to make friends as everybody seems to have formed their own little cliques. Sally Green, a girl from Peter's English Lit class, invites Peter to a party to prove to Gwen that Peter isn't a stuck-up snob. But she screws it all up when she points out that it'll be nice to have a brainy type at the party instead of all those brawny types. Peter immediately has Betty Brandt flashbacks and backpedals, saying he's probably busy tonight, washing his purr or some such. Gwen welcomes Sally to the Peter is a Jerk fan club. This is a good scene. Peter is really trying here. Not like in high school, where after the first few issues he kind of brushed off the whole high school social scene as a bad job. He wants to make friends and be accepted, but the pain over the loss of Betty is still too much. He resents being seen as a type. We can argue this, but how we are perceived by others is very important to us as teenagers. And Peter seems to want to reinvent himself in college. Elsewhere, Fest has carefully planned what to do with his newfound abilities. And that plan can be best summed up with one word. Crime. Because this is a comic, he's made himself a very natty white and purple costume, which I'm sure must be a bitch to keep clean. Call himself the looter, he's hitting banks all over town, becoming more brazen with each passing theft. It's a nice little montage of the looter building his rep, so by the next panel Spider-Man has heard of him and is trying to track him down. The days pass with no luck as Fester is laying low, but Fester is starting to get concerned that his meteor has no more gas in it. So far we've seen no evidence that his powers will wear off, but hey, why take that chance? Failing to find the looter, Peter decides to go to the space exhibit and, as Stan's captions helpfully point out, we've telegraphed what happens next. Yes, the looter appears and tells the citizens to scarper so he can nick another meteor. Interesting notes about this scene are that Peter is genuinely interested in what's going on with the space programme and dreams of working on something like these capsules and shuttles on display. We've not seen that Peter is a total science nerd for quite a while and it's nice to be reminded of it on occasion. The other interesting note about this scene is that Gwen is here alone and of her own accord. Another nice reminder that Gwen was also a bit of a science geek. There's no other reason she would have gone to a science space exhibit on her own. This plays into my theory that Gwen was a secret science nerd. She was evidently a popular kid in high school, he's fawned over by all the boys, and is very attractive, but he's really attracted to Peter because of their shared interests. I'd like to point to this being another example of comics handling subtle characterization, but I'm not entirely convinced it was deliberate. She spends most of the scene trying to catch Peter's eye, but he only has eyes for science. Anyway, Peter flees as the looter demands, and Gwen is shocked, thinking Peter a coward. I've asked this before in relation to similar scenes in an earlier episode, but what exactly did Gwen want Peter to do? Nobody's in any immediate danger, so taking the looter up on his offer seems a perfectly legitimate response to me. Of course, Peter isn't a coward, he simply needs to get away and change to Spider-Man. This he does, and Ditko pulls off another great and visually interesting fight scene. Ditko liked putting Spider-Man in unusual situations for his fights, and this is one of the best locations since Spider-Man doesn't want any of the exhibits getting destroyed. We also get Spider-Man using his brains as the looter uses his dazzle gun, but Spider-Man ignores this by closing his eyes and using his spider-sense to follow the looter, which freaks the looter out. The looter pulls the old put-the-bystanders-in-jeopardy trick and escapes as Spider-Man saves them. Apparently the shot of Spider-Man stood outside the window in panel 5 of page 13 is not a Ditko drawing. Allegedly the original art has this be the looter and Stan had it changed by another artist for some reason. Days pass as the looter watches the exhibition with interest. So does Spider-Man. The looter bides his time and attacks only when the exhibit is closing at the end of the week, making it more vulnerable to attack. Spider-Man has been doing the same thing, and they get into another fight. This is, again, visually attractive, if nothing else. Spider-Man pursues the looter into the sky as the looter escapes via a helium balloon, and Ditko's use of angles is dizzyingly effective. Lee gets in some choice lines, but despite the altitude, Spider-Man doesn't have much trouble polishing the looter off. He unmasks him, but doesn't have a clue who he is, a story beat that's been played out before with Electra, and turns him over to the police. When Falls the Meteor is not Prime Lee Ditko, but it isn't the turkey many believe it to be either. In fact, there's a lot to like here. The art and action sequences are well realised, although it's the third issue in a row to end with Spider-Man and his adversary just punching each other, and Spider-Man winning just because he out-punches the other guy. Stan's dialogue is genuinely funny in a story I don't think is designed to be taken too seriously, or at least not one Stan is taking too seriously. I've seen a number of critical appraisals of Ditko's work that specifically point to this issue as being quite Anne Rand in its subtext as well. I can't take any credit for noticing that, as I'm not a scholar of Ms Rand by any means, but the fact that I've seen a few people mention it means there's a fair bit more to this issue than perhaps people are giving it credit for. On the other side of the coin, there are story beats here we've seen before. Peter was called a coward for running away from a super-powered adversary on at least one other occasion. And we have also unmasked at least one major bad guy, only for Spider-Man to shrug and say, Who he? on another. I can also understand why Ditko may not be too happy with Lee making light of his plots. Still, a fun little romp and well worth your time. Amazing Spider-Man issue 37 has a strange cyborg-looking man on the cover and two panels of Spider-Man fighting strange robots, one over a fire pit and one where a Terminator-style exoskeleton fires a laser beam out of his eye. It's very nice and colourful. Entitled Once Upon a Time There Was a Robot, the splash is unusual but effective. We hate to brag, but this one's a doozy, runs the copy, as Peter Parker, in his Spider-Man costume but sans mask, looks over a symbolic representation of his life one hand is on his head tapping at his temple with one finger the other hand looking at a small chessboard piece of all the people in his life Jonah, norman osborne patch gwen mendelstrom who we haven't met yet flash and a few other random citizens the freaky robot things from the cover are also here all are stood on a table that is surrounded with webs one of Ditko's best and most symbolic pieces of work. If a man could take a step back and look at his life and the people in it dispassionately and reflectively, as if to gain some measure of perspective, it would look like this. Our story opens with Professor Mendelstrom leaving prison and being picked up by another former inmate, Max Young. We know this because yet another former inmate and cellmate of Strom, Fred Falswell, is watching. Foswell is about to take a bullet to the back, but unbeknownst to him, Spider-Man is his guardian angel tonight and he saves his life. Spidey then cons the gunman into following Strom, but the police are wise to the gunman and pursue him. Spider-Man takes his leave, miffed he never got to find out what Foswell and Professor Strom were up to. We've kind of been here before, with a number of earlier Spider-Man stories opening with a crook being released from prison. The difference here is we don't know Strom, although Foswell and apparently Spider-Man do. This scene is enlivened by the shot of Spider-Man sat in the back of a gunman's car with a fedora on his head. We're given no indication as to why Spider-Man was following Foswell, or even if he was, and this was all just dumb luck. The shot of Spider-Man in panel 7 of page 3 would be used as clip art in the Marriage of Reed and Sue issue of the Fantastic Four, and in the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon. Spider-Man races to the Daily Bugle, where Jonah is still going through secretaries like tissue paper. Peter happens to be with Jonah when Foswell tells them both about Strom, which seems to contradict one page earlier, where Spider-Man already seemed to know who the professor was. Foswell tells Peter and Jonah that Strom is a mechanical genius who has been vowing vengeance on whoever sent him down. Peter plants a spider tracer in Foswell's hat, another trick he's used before. Apparently the bugle is a really small-time operation, as Peter hasn't been paid for his last photos, something Jonah blames on Betty, implying that Betty was also in charge of payroll. Maybe she was, I don't know. Peter heads off to college and we get a truly fascinating scene. With May better and a few bucks in his pocket, this is a far more confident Peter and he addresses Gwen, asking if he can walk to class with her. Gwen is a standoffish as usual, calling Peter stuck up, but Peter doesn't take any shit and tells her that she's temperamental. He immediately realises his mistake and offers to bury the hatchet, easily preventing Gwen from slapping him and calling her gorgeous when angry. This is a playful scene showing a very relaxed Peter who's clearly attracted to Gwen and a Gwen easily angered by Peter's nonchalance, proving her interest in him. Flash then butts in, challenging Peter to a fight. What happens next will shock you. Sorry, I became clickbaity for a moment. Peter pauses for a minute and actually thinks about doing it. He genuinely considers punching Flash in the face. He knows he could do it with no problems, and the look on his face is intriguing. Peter is considering punching Flash out, finally and forever. This isn't an angry moment where he loses control. Peter gives this serious thought. Consider this. Peter is no longer the nerd wallflower of the early issues. He's a confident, intelligent and articulate young man. And this is a real moment in his life where he knows that Flash is showing off to impress Gwen. And that he has no reason to hold back. Flash has taunted Peter throughout his high school life. Why not just lamp the twat and shut him up forever? And if Gwen thinks better of him because of it, well, that's just a bonus. Peter ultimately decides against it, because no matter how careful he is, he could really hurt Flash. But that he even thought about it gives us a look into this more mature Peter Parker. Gwen is still impressed, though, as she notes that Peter isn't the least bit scared of Flash. Harry is a massive in these scenes saying he saw what happened because Peter gives him a swift pain but Gwen slaps him down saying Harry doesn't like anyone smarter than he is. This not only gives us a glimpse into Harry's inferiority complex but also shows how he struggled to please his father. He doesn't like anyone who's smarter than he presumably because his dad pays more attention to them than to him. Flash gets to be a cock one more time telling Peter, remember stay out of my way from now on Parker which ignores that Peter does stay out of Flash's way. Flash keeps butting in on Peter's business. Peter retorts that he'd be happy to, because Flash's stupidity may be catchy. Mendel Strom, meanwhile, has constructed a mentally controlled robot that he dispatches to destroy the lab of a man who has wronged him. This robot causes a fire which attracts Spider-Man's attention. Ditko doesn't let us down in the fight scene between Spider-Man and the funny robot, which does look like a giant squid, and is a much more interesting design than the more traditional robot that follows. The lab being ablaze allows Ditko to add layers of smoke to the panels, and there is also the added drama of the fire plus a villain Spider-Man can't beat. The robot not liking fire and thus letting Spider-Man go away doesn't really make a lot of sense, but whatever, comics. Far more interesting is that the lab is owned by Norman Osborn, and for the first time, the figure we've only seen in background frames and cameo appearances is given a name and a son, Harry. Ditko's love of the long game has paid off. Not only has that bloke who cropped up here and there being brought into the light rather suddenly, but his resemblance to Harry wasn't an accident. This is genius. Ditko has been seeding this for months and we didn't even know. Now we look back at it and think it's rather obvious, but reading it here for this show, Ditko never once telegraphed his intentions. We also learn that Norman is a wronged, having cheated Strum out of his inventions and jailed him. He's also a bit of a bastard to Harry, wonder if he ever shuts up. This adds to Harry's character as a rich brat who craves the love of his father, a love never forthcoming. Spider-Man starts following Patch, Foswell's snitch alter ego, and they both wind up trapped as the robot goes after Norman. Fortunately, Spider-Man plants a spider tracer on the robot, and after stopping Patch from being killed, he tries to stop the robot from killing Norman. Spider-Man's reaction to having to fight yet another robot is comical, but Norman being attacked is chilling stuff, with him being blasted and targeted by a robot controlled by Strom. Norman isn't impressed with Spider-Man interfering, and longs for the day Spidey's finished off for good, as he's interfered with his plans far too much. Spider-Man continues to be oblivious to Norman and fights the robot in a pretty impressive sequence of panels, but Norman manages to get the drop on Spider-Man, knocking him out from behind. No normal man! should be able to knock Spider-Man out with one blow, right? The mystery deepens. The robot leaves Spider-Man, thinking him dead, but Spider-Man follows the Spider-Tracer to Strom's lure. After thrashing the robot, Strom starts to tell Spider-Man something, but before he can elaborate, Strom is shot at. However, the shot came from a high window, where there is no ladder, rope, or the sound of a helicopter. How could the killer shoot from that window, and then get away without making a sound? Spider-Man pushes Strom out of the path of the bullet, but has a heart attack and dies anyway. Later, Norman is told about this by Jonah. He seems to be fixing his tie and professes to have forgotten all about Strom. It's a great ending, especially when Norman is seen holding the gun that shot at Strom. The issue ends with Peter ignoring some college chums, asking him to go bowling in favour of musing about who it was that took a pop at Strom, something that does not endear him to his cohort. What a great issue. Who is Norman? What are his plans? How did he get to that window and then disappear, as if he was on a, I don't know, floating glider of some kind? This is a startling return to early greatness, with an issue that on the one hand appears to be a done-in-one standalone where Spider-Man fights robot, but is in fact a key issue in the saga of the Green Goblet, even if the readers at the time didn't know it. Norman is revealed to be not a nice man at all, and his internal monologues and facial expressions show a scarred and twisted human being who will no doubt be a major player in issues to come. After a few lacklustre stories, this issue kicks us back into high gear and promises more greatness to follow. It's very sad, therefore, that the next issue is Ditko's last and doesn't even have a proper cover. All the images are stolen from inside the comic, The central image of Spider-Man punching as he leaps is taken from page 13, panel 5, whilst the three panels across the bottom of Spider-Man fighting various different thugs are taken from pages 7, 12 and 15 respectively. The overall feeling is one of a patchwork cover, cobbled together when Ditko was out the door. Surely there were some poster images or sketches Ditko had done that hadn't seen print that could have been used instead of this hodgepodge. Just a Guy Named Joe is the title of the final collaboration between Stan Lee and Steve Ditka. We open unusually with no splash page and no appearance by either Peter Parker or Spider-Man. Joe Smith is a wannabe boxer who nags an agent, Tommy Tompkins, for a bout. Tompkins agrees just to get Smith off his back and the fight ends predictably with Smith out for the count. Smith then tries wrestling where the result is the same. Tompkins feels a tinge of sadness for Smith and manages to book him a gig on a film as a rampaging monster. It's not much of a part, but it's less dangerous than getting punched about the head However, this being a comic, some debris from a of wood set Smith is destroying hits an arc light and falls into some chemicals that are inexplicably spilt all over the floor. Smith takes a hit and feels woozy, but doesn't seem to suffer any other side effects. Now again, this isn't a bad opening. And again... Sure, it's nothing we've not seen before, but Joe Smith is instantly a likeable, down-on-his-look dreamer with delusions of grandeur. He's been mocked by the other boxers and Tompkins taking a shine to the kid, endear him to the reader, and we're on his side. This isn't a criminal like Mac Gargan or a man with a grudge like Craven. This is a normal guy with aspirations and dreams. He's relatable. But we're reading this for our other relatable hero, Peter Parker. Peter is at the Daily Bugle where another of Jonah's secretaries is quitting, Murphy Brown style. There's a humorous comedy beat where Peter tries to avoid Jonah who blames Peter for Betty quitting and then it gets serious as Ned Leeds accuses Peter of the same thing only with a much harder edge and the threat of fisticuffs. Peter is typically Peter here, firing back sarcastic jibes and uncurring remarks even though he's intrigued as he thought Betty had left with Ned. What's perhaps more interesting about the scene is Peter seems to have moved past Betty completely. Whilst he does muse what would have been had he told her his secret, he doesn't seem to miss her or their relationship, showing just how quickly he's gotten over somebody who was allegedly the love of his life. There's a bit of sexism here, as Peter notes that no one can predict a female's reaction, but that's just as true today as ever, even if the feeling would be expressed differently nowadays. Back to Joe Smith, who seems to have gone a little cuckoo, hurling stuntmen around and busting loose at the film studios that fortunately only seem to be a small walk away from the bugle offices. He flees the studio and starts tossing cars around just as Peter walks by. Spotting the man in the funny orange and green movie costume, Peter dons his Spider-Man suit and tries to stop Joe, who fights back quite admirably, tossing Spider-Man into a passing garbage truck. It's another fight scene that largely involves Spider-Man and Joe trading punches. Stan's dialogue goes a long way to saving the fight, with Spidey throwing out pithy lines and generally entertaining one-liners, but Stan seems to mix Joe up with the Hulk, as Joe also claims to get stronger the madder he gets. Tompkins helps Joe escape, and Peter returns to college. In another part of town, Norman Osborn dons a disguise, and then offers to pay a substantial reward to a bunch of mobsters to take out Spider-Man. The mystery of Norman Osborn is deepening, and I honestly don't understand how, over the years, readers have been putting forth the idea that the reveal of the Green Goblin was the reason Ditko left. The story goes that Ditko wanted to reveal the Green Goblin to be a nobody, a trick he'd pulled before, and Stan disagreed. I think the comics themselves put lie to this... Ditko is clearly building Norman up to be somebody, first by seeding him slowly into the background, and then by introducing Harry, and then revealing the two to be related, and then positioning Norman as a bad guy with a grudge against Spider-Man. All clues are pointing to Norman being the Green Goblin. Now, whether Ditko would have revealed Norman as soon as next issue is open to debate, but I don't think he would. Given Ditko's love of the slow burn, I think he'd have played this for about six more months before revealing Osborne's secret. But I think Stan wanted Ditko's leftover subplot out of the way quickly. Over at ESU, Peter tells a bunch of protesters that he can't be bothered with their protest, and they take umbrage. This seems a bit weird. Stan, or Steve, don't actually tell us what they are protesting. And Lee even mocks their willingness to protest anything, saying this is a protest to protest the protest meeting. It's clearly a bit of fun, poking the student proclivity of the time of having protest marches if the day of the week had a Y in it, but Stan took a lot of flack about this from the student readership of the day. To me, this scene is clearly trying to be relevant, but by not mentioning what they're protesting, it's meant to be funny rather than a serious commentary. Gwen, Flash and Harry are all in Peter's face for not joining in with the protest, which is also strange as they weren't joining in either, and Flash calls Peter a mop-top. Harry then asks Flash why he doesn't take a pop at Peter, because that's what Harry would have done. Flash calls Harry's bullshit out by saying that Peter is still over there if you want to go, but Harry chickens out saying that he wouldn't want to hurt Peter. Firstly, Peter being a mock-top in 1966 makes him infinitely cooler than Flash, who's still rocking the 50s crew cut, and secondly, Harry is once again a massive cock. How they manage to turn this character around into a vaguely likeable personality is a marvel. The very idea of Harry replete in his bowtie and blue suit ensemble, taking a pop at Peter, or anybody for that matter, is frankly laughable. More and more, Harry comes across as the nerd who hides out with the cooler kids, even though the cooler kids are kind of a worries and asshole. Both Gwen and Flash have shown they aren't entirely falling for Harry's tough guy act, which shows them both to be smarter than they appear. Harry even calls Peter out for not being nerdy enough when he says his dad has forgotten more about science than Peter will ever know. Harry in these stories is a detestable character, even more than Flash, in so much as at least Flash has been true to himself. Gwen, for her part, is still nursing an attraction to Peter and feels sorry for him. This Gwen, despite being capable of massive mood swings, is a far feistier character than she would become, and her being a capable science student is a nice character trait. Peter decides to put on his costume and clear his head, unaware of the bounty on it. Meanwhile, Joe Smith is really cracking up, vowing to prove himself strong enough a champion to stand alone against the world. He heads over to the gym and picks a fight with all the boxers who mocked him earlier as Spider-Man happens by, involved in his own fight. The boxers suddenly know about the reward, implying some of them are also leg breakers and they want a piece of that Spider-Man action and Spider-Man suddenly finds himself fighting boxers, mobsters and Joe Smith for two pages of textless action. It's not bad, but a bit pedestrian. Dicko's better than this. Joe Smith's powers were off and he's offered a contract with the studio who are blown away by his dailies. Them hoping he won't sue them is probably a motive for the contract as well. An enraged, Spider-Man learns that the reward for his head is 20 grand and that Joe is painted a hero really annoys him. Spider-Man wails on the remaining mobsters outside, mobsters the police don't really seem to care about. He even punches a tailor's dummy which is here for some reason because it reminds him of Ned Leeds. He goes home where he just misses Murray Jane and sees on the news that Joe has been offered a lead in a new TV show about a superhero. Aunt May tells him the news will give him nightmares, and Peter replies that that's unlikely. He only gets nightmares when he's awake. And so, it ends. One of the finest, most groundbreaking and seminal runs in superhero comics winds up not with a bang, but with a whimper. Steve Ditko quit the boot without telling anybody why. Stan recalls that Ditko walked into the Marvel offices, left the art for the issue told production manager Sol Brodsky he was quitting, and left. Didn't even provide a cover. Stan has said he was angry at Steve, not even mentioning it in the story itself or on the letters page, although all the letters are now mysteriously addressed, Dear Stan, rather than Dear Stan and Steve. Ditko leaving in such a way angered Stan so much, Stan never even bothered trying to call Steve to ask why. Ditko, for his part, has only said that he felt Stan was working against him. Comics scholars have theorised that what Ditko meant by this was that even though he was plotting the story, Stan as editor and scripter had the final say. This may have been the first time the so-called Marvel method of writing comics broke up a successful team, but it wouldn't be the last. Steve leaving was mentioned on the Bullpen Bulletin's page, and the reason given for his quitting was personal reasons, which is true as far as it goes. More text is spent lauding John Romita as Steve Ditko's replacement than mentioning Steve's contributions. As for the issue itself, I think a case can be made that it's only disappointing because it's Ditko's last issue, rather than being a disappointing issue in and of itself. It's true that Spider-Man is a secondary character in his own strip, with Joe Smith being the star of the issue, there's nothing wrong with that, as Joe's situation informs Peter's, and is in fact reminiscent of Peter's story itself. Peter is annoyed and upset that Joe did all of this... ...and yet it all works out okay for him... ...whereas for Spider-Man, the world is against him. The ending is as downbeat as Spider-Man ever got... ...and it's not hard to see something of Ditko in the final pages. Ditko leaving the art at Marvel and quietly walking out... ...telling nobody why he's going... ...just pulling up the collar on his jacket... ...and walking away. The strip is also left with a lot of Ditko's loose ends still dangling... We never see Murray Jane properly, so that is still an outstanding thread. Peter is an outcast again, Betty is gone, Spider-Man still has a twenty grand price on his head, we don't know exactly what the deal is with Norman Osborn, and, most importantly, we never do find out if Peter got paid for those last photos he provided for Jonah. Whilst most of these loose ends will be tied up, we'll never know what Ditko had planned. As of next issue, John Romita will take over the art, and whilst I'm a bigger fan of the Romita heroes as anybody, and he did... Take the comic to higher sales figures and greater acclaim. The strip never again had the edge that it had under Ditko. Ditko's Spider-Man was dangerous, like the reader never quite knew what would happen next. It was the story of a young man whose life was in constant flux, and it could all be taken away from him in an instant. Under Stan and Remita, Peter's life would get a bit easier. Harry would be softened as a character, becoming almost pleasant. Flash would eventually be drafted into the army, and with the addition of Murray Jane, the strip would get its first sex symbol. Gwen would also have her acerbic edges toned down, becoming more likeable, but less interesting. And we all know where that led. Ditko and Lee's run on Spider-Man is unsurpassed, and Spider-Man is probably the second most important superhero character ever created. Before Spider-Man, all these supertypes were variations on the Superman theme, with little difference or originality. That's not to say they weren't enjoyable, they clearly were, but they followed an already in-place template with little deviation. Spider-Man was different. Spider-Man subversively and gleefully tore up the rulebook while still working within the conventions of the genre. In my heart of hearts, there are times where I truly believe Spider-Man has never been better than he was here. I hope you have very much enjoyed this retrospective as much as I have. And I hope I've managed to fully explain why I feel this way about these comics. About how they made me feel as a kid, and how they can still transport me back to a time when Spider-Man was the hero that could be you.
1: Carl, you have travelled far. One journey has ended, a new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every 8th episode I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. but. As awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville every 8th Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com.
0: So uh, just enough time to do some email, which I always like doing. Chris Franklin has emailed in, first of all, with the amazing Toby Man. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. I thoroughly enjoyed your commentary on the first Raimi Spidey film with Mr Bailey. You guys brought up some valid points and thoughts I hadn't considered in a long time. Heck, I'd forgotten Elizabeth Banks was Betty Brand in these films, and I just rewatched this one a while back because my daughter Danny wanted to see it. Maguire gets a lot of grief nowadays, but I liked him all right. I do think Garfield was better suited and, as Michael pointed out, more committed to the role. If you could put Garfield in Raimi's movies, I think you'd come closer to a more perfect Spidey film experience. Dunst is okay in this first film. They go out of their way to make her more attractive. I know that sounds shallow, but the original point of MJ was that she was drop-dead gorgeous. Dunst is less effective in the second film and seems honked off to be in the third film at all. Her and Maguire don't have much screen chemistry, which is odd, because I do believe they dated following this movie. Looking forward to listening to your Spidey theory commentary over on Views. There's a good film buried in amongst the unneeded Venom subplot somewhere. Poor Amy. I was very impressed with Tom Holland's portrayal and the setup they've given him for future Spidey films. Very stoked to see where they go with him, Chris. Yes, I was. Uh, I was absolutely made up with Tom Holland in uh, in Captain America: Civil War. I think he's going to be fantastic, and, and like you, Chris, I'm very much looking forward to him coming now. I think it's going to be very interesting. Uh, Patrick Delmore emailed in about The Invaders. Hi, Andy. Hi, Patrick. Very fun episode today. I'd never heard of The Invaders, and I wanted to see the show before listening. Happily, it was on YouTube, so I watched the pilot episode whilst I ate breakfast. I really enjoyed it. The chase scene in the hospital was so reminiscent of Star Trek that I wasn't surprised when you said that, that that was the show the director was known for. I liked that The Invaders gave so much time to building atmosphere. Shots of people walking and studying their surroundings while out trying to build up tension to a certain jump are solely missed, by me at least, in modern TV and horror in general. Thanks for another great episode. Patrick, We are very welcome. Always doing something like The Invaders is always a bit tricky because you never know what the reaction's going to be. Because like, I was like, do, do people even remember what The Invaders is? So that's always interesting to do something like that. I, I may pull a few more of them obscure things out of the bag. I've got a, I've got a Jones into Man from Atlantis and I don't know why. Because it's probably terrible. But I quite enjoyed it as a kid, so, you know. Final email tonight is also about The Invaders from Jason Trenner. Hey Andy, it was interesting to hear you talk about The Invaders. It was a show that at least at one point was played on the sci-fi channel in the 90s. You also missed a show that was the late 90s or early noughties remake called First Wave. Seriously, it was basically an updated version of the Invaders with Nostradamus thrown in for some reason. Well Murray was an alien and they'd left their plans to be about the same even centuries later. Frankly, all those paranoia alien invasion shows. I honestly have this weird but amusing thought for the villains of them to think they'd won, only to find out they were messing with an Autobot in human disguise. And weird that way. Not that you would probably find that statement to be a shock. Plus it felt good to make a Transformers reference. That I don't understand. <laughs> Love the show! And look forward to the various topics you discuss on it. Well, thank you, Jess. Very much uh, nice to hear from you and Patrick and, uh, of course, Chris. That's it for this time. At the present moment, I don't actually have what's planned next, so it could be anything, which for me is the joy of the show. Remember, if you like what you hear here or on any of the other shows on the Two True Freaks Network... Go to the web page and click on the link for Amazon. Go and buy something from Amazon and we get a kickback, which is always nice. Okay, that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed that, because that is the end of the Lead Retrospective. And I'll be back with a couple of random stuff in the near future. Take care. Bye-bye.